Welcome to On Call with Dr. Dave. On today's podcast, we're speaking with Dr. Adam, who is a hematologist-oncologist. And that's one of the specialties I'm always in awe of. I did a hematology-oncology rotation in medical school, and I was just impressed with the doctors and uh, the nurses I worked with on that uh, rotation. You deal with a lot of very difficult things, and you really are like Dr. House on TV, where you are hunting down diagnoses, coming up with specific treatment plans, looking at slides underneath the microscope yourself. So I was always impressed uh, with that field, and I really appreciate what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for being so kind to me and the rest of the medical oncologists and hematologists. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure they will all agree with you that we're the smartest breed ever <laughs> out there. All joking aside, but I do think we need to, just as medical practitioners, find more grace for each other. There's, oh, they called me about this. Oh, I can't believe this. Or we we get frustrated, but we're all on the same team. So as much as possible, I think we need to spend more time complimenting each other and really just being there for each other, no matter what specialty or doctor, nurse practitioner, just supporting each other. There's very few people that understand what we go through. And so we need to create a community amongst ourselves. I totally agree. And that's something I used to always tell my residents and fellows is when they would complain about, quote unquote, uh, dumb consult. Okay, that's that's dumb to you, for you, because that's what you live and breathe every day in and day out. But if I ask you to to suture someone or to, to change a wound back, like that's, you know, what what surgeons might think is dumb for us is hard. So it's all relative. We just get very uh, wrapped up in our own specialties and in our own ways. And sometimes we get frustrated, but I totally agree. I think we all bring something different to the table and cement each other. And as, as sappy as it sounds, and maybe because I'm an oncologist, I feel it more. But at the end of the day, it's really what's best for the patient, right? We can argue and bitch about each other behind closed doors, but <laughs> as long as in the end, we're really bettering the lives of people for sure. And I'm very specialized, ultra specialized at a very small part of the body. And I tell people that you want the best doctor for your problem, regardless of what that is. People come to me very, for very specific reasons, but I don't try to manage anything else for them because I'm not as qualified as other doctors. If the best person is a hematologist, oncologist, or the best person is the neurosurgeon, you, every patient deserves that or a consult. So at least the other person weighs in and can say yes or no to something. Like I said, it's about the patient care. And sometimes it may seem not necessary to us, but if the doctor or somebody who's consulting us, it's because they run up against something that they're not able to take care of themselves, or they need reassurance that they're on the right track. So I I do think it is all about patient care. I I still gripe about some of the consults where somebody calls me and they say exactly what's going on. And there's a very specific treatment course for what's going on. And they still want me to come see the patient. I'm like, wait, you're, you know what the diagnosis is, you know what the treatment is. Why am I getting involved? So those are some of the more difficult ones, but I still try to approach it kindly and as much as I can. I I hope the people listening that have consulted me in the past are not sitting there thinking, I've consulted you before. It wasn't that pleasant. Send it the grace to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what that long pause on the phone was. (laughs) was Reading between those lines. It's It's me modulating my voice that 
yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I, of course. I mean, Happy to see you. Yeah, I was called at 3 a.m. this week, and this patient was woken up in the middle of the night to get some medication for his eye. And then I was consulted in the middle of the night on a patient I already knew because the vision was blurrier in the middle of the night than it was the night before when he went to sleep. I'm like, when you wake up at 3 a.m. and you're in the hospital and people check your vision, the room's dark, it, it might just be a little blurrier than it was the, the mm -hmm. night before. So I said, I think that can wait till tomorrow. I'll, I'll check him in the morning and see how he's doing when he's awake and not 3 a.m. But thank you for letting me know, but I'm going to go back to sleep now. <laughs> Now, when you look back at your career, it doesn't have to be something recent. A lot of the stories that people share actually come from the first few years of training or what got them into medicine, because those stories stick with us a little stronger than when we've seen it the thousandth time. It's usually the first or second time we've seen something that really sticks with us. But just when you look back at your career, what stories stick out to you? What are those moments that, that you remember the most, most acutely? Some patients affect you more than others. Mm -hmm. So a couple stand out. I think really my first couple of experiences in oncology was before residency, even when I was still a medical student. So my first rotation in oncology was at the leukemia wards. And at that time I was in med school. So in my early twenties, and there was a 21 year old with um, acute leukemia. Wow. And just seeing, unfortunately, he passed. He had a very aggressive uh, type of leukemia and wasn't responding to treatment. So just seeing someone basically the same age as you withering away and where you've seen them a couple of weeks before and, excuse me, they were completely normal. So I think that was like my intro to oncology, which for a lot of people, it might be traumatic enough to say, I don't want anything near yeah. to go anywhere near that. For me, I'm not sure what it was, but something clicked. To me, it was, okay, this is where the biggest need is in my mind. There's a need in all fields, obviously, but this is where I think I can make the most impact mm -hmm. on someone's life. And obviously I like the science behind it and never looked back. I did hesitate at some point. So I'm Lebanese originally. I did my medical school in Lebanon. Then I moved to the U.S. in 2008. So during my intern year, I was engaged at that time. And my fiance was still back in Lebanon. She was finishing up her med school. And she got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Which is weird because anyone who would think that they might have cancer or have any questions about oncology or I'll call Adam. He'll at least know where to direct us. What's interesting is that she had a little bit of chest pain over the sternum, almost costochondral junction for about six months. We were like young female, Tate yeah. syndrome, costochondritis, yeah, let's do NSAIDs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then you got to a point where they got it. She got a mass and it was basically the distinal mass that has made its way between the ribs and what's actually something palpable. And that's when she got the biopsy and got diagnosed with it. I got that call at six in the morning as 
I was getting ready to go in. I was still an intern that year. And going back to what I was just saying, where you feel the walls are closing in on you. You can't breathe. You can't even cry. You're just like in shock completely. This does have a happy ending. Luckily, she responded extremely well to chemotherapy. It was classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. This was 2008, almost 15 years ago. So she's alive and well with two beautiful children. Obviously, we're not together, but that's for a different reason, not related to the cancer. <laughs> but I did hesitate then for about, let's say, maybe six, nine months, where before I was like, oncology, this is the road that wrapped for me. When it hits close to home, I think our initial reaction is to run away mm-hmm. and say, okay, how am I going to be able to do my job if everyone I see, they remind me of someone close to me who has cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, luckily she did well with it, but what if things went the other way? Um, yeah. Would I be in oncology today? I'm not sure. It's, it's impossible nice. to tell. But I think as a few months went by, you adjust to the new normal and you gain that fire again and the full speed ahead. I can only imagine that made you that much better as an oncologist. The initial going through it being scary and terrifying and maybe wanting to run away, but then really knowing what your patients are going through, knowing what that news feels like when you deliver it. I can only imagine how much more compassionate that made you and also just how much more the patients trusted you just even if they didn't know your story, just the way you delivered that news, that probably it probably changed. There's probably something palpably different about your interactions after that with those patients. Oh, 100%, 100%. As busy as we are in everyday practice and running from room to room and trying to get to the next patient, I always make it a point, especially for the initial consultation or a follow-up if I'm giving a patient bad news is take your time. Nothing else matters, right? Be it 45 minutes, an hour. That person right in front of you right now deserves your full attention, your full compassion. And that's, again, it's a cliche, but that's how I want it to be treated. Um, (laughs) Because I even remember after I got the initial call, it was before the biopsy. They did a CT scan and the, it was eroding into the sternum a little mm-hmm. bit. Obviously, nothing good. No. I was thinking yeah. more sarcomas because it didn't seem that it was coming from the lymph nodes at that time. And I remember calling the hematologist who, remember, I was just telling you that I did my rotation and that was with him. And he's the one who really got me interested mm-hmm. in EMOG. But I just remember he was so cut and dry and matter of fact about it that, oh yeah, no, this is nothing good. No benign disease is going to do that. This is horrible. Okay. Yes, I know that, (laughs) (laughs) but go a little bit easy on me here, right? Yeah. Yeah. I need that that would blow a little softer, add a little bit of, but we'll find out or, but maybe I'm wrong and it'll be something. Yeah. (laughs) 
And not even that, like, again, um, I was already in the medical field. I knew it wasn't going to be anything good, but it was just so harsh that even though I knew everything he told me verbatim, it was just not what you want to hear. At that no. And that's, that's another important thing is really just gauging your patient and trying to figure out, okay, how much information do you want now? versus, mm. okay, this is the shock factor and you're probably not going to hear anything else I say. And yeah. let's save that for the next visit where you take it more in versus some people who just want to know everything from the get-go and mm-hmm. they come to you with printouts. <laughs> yeah, I love when they pull out the sheet with three pages worth of questions on it and like you said, you have to gauge. I, I don't deal with as many cancers as you do, but I deal with cancers of the face and the orbit, and some of them are malignant, and some of them have 50% mortality. Most of the cancers I deal with are skin cancers with good cure rates, but I deal with some pretty aggressive cancers as well, and I, I think the best thing I do is I set the stage. When I'm concerned, I, I tell them what I'm concerned about and why I'm concerned So they at least start thinking about it. So when I do get the diagnosis or when I do get the further imaging and we're getting closer to knowing it's an aggressive type of cancer, it's not the first time they've heard it. It's not a big blow that, oh, this is nothing. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. They know from the get-go that there's something to worry about. And I don't want to make them anxious, but I don't want the first time they even hear or think about the word cancer to be the diagnosis where it's on the printout and says, this is this cancer. And so I found that's easier because like you said, some people, if, if it's unexpected, which sometimes it is, and I have to just say, I wasn't expecting this, but it's cancer. They just shut down. And when I've had the conversation, they're prepared and they're mentally prepared. I try not to surprise my patients as much as possible. I'm hundred percent on board with that. You, even the ones, for example, say in follow-ups where I can sense that they're not responding anymore, but they're mm-hmm. waiting for the scan. So same thing. You lay down the groundwork, so to speak. So it's not a complete shock. And to your point, what, what I've seen a couple of times, which is even worse, is patients are not always compliant. And especially if they hear, oh, my doctor told me it's nothing to worry about, then never go back. <laughs> so... <laughs> that that that's that adds another level of complexity right there. Yeah. Now, cancer treatment has changed and improved more in the last five, ten years than I think at any other time in history. When you think back to that first patient with the aggressive leukemia, do you think that do you think that guy would have had a chance now? Do you think we would have had a treatment plan for him? Possibly, yeah. It's changed so much. As I said, I graduated in 2013. And just looking back at the way we treated some cancers just 10 years ago, completely different than the way we treat them today. For that patient, very possibly just even the testing aspect of it and trying uh, moving away from characterizing cancers based on how they look under microscope to molecularly characterizing cancers and that's the step beyond and then after that you get to the molecularly targeted therapies 
which has been the largest uh, step forward that and immunotherapy. Yeah, you might have a fighting chance. One example I'll use is melanoma. Melanoma right now, immunotherapy has changed the landscape of melanoma so much just because it responds so well to immunotherapy. And at the same time, immunotherapy in general is really well tolerated. When I was going through training, we had two drugs for melanoma and neither one worked. So anyone with metastatic melanoma, it was pretty much a death sentence, except for 13% who have to undergo interleukin therapy mm -hmm. and they're in the ICU for days, if not weeks. But for the most part, we were giving patients treatments, might not work so well, but there were no other options. The last few months before I graduated was when the first immunotherapy was approved for melanoma. And I remember we gave a patient that infusion. So remember, it cost $60,000 for four doses back then. <laughs> and it was huge. It was like night and day, someone going from extremely sick, cachectic to within a few weeks, just feeling normal again, eating more active. Wow. So it's really, it's been changing so fast and just the progress has been exponential. So I think one, one of the most exciting things going on in oncology right now is really the new therapies for sure. And as I said, the more targeted therapies, but it's also, we're getting better and better at classifying tumors. And that's where that molecular testing comes in, where I completely can see in a few years where instead of saying, okay, this patient has non-small or squamous cell lung cancer, oh, this patient has an EGFR positive, up negative, so-and-so. Mm -hmm. We're moving away from just an anatomical and morphological classification to uh, a more uh, deeper level of understanding. Uh, so to me, that's yeah. really exciting. Yeah, it's the genetics of the cancer. It's just like we have our genetic profile. I'm a person, my wife's a different person, and we have different genetics. My kids are different than me, even though they come from me, but their genetics are different. That's cancer. Right now, it's just one cancer is not the same. Every genetic profile is different, and there's hallmarks that make them the same, but each one's going to be unique. And we're going to finally have targeted treatments for the uniqueness of each cancer, which is, is just amazing just to look at it. My grandfather died of metastatic melanoma. So it's oh. interesting. That's the one example you brought up because yeah. that's what killed him. And it might not have now. And I had a, yeah, my grandmother died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 33. And this was in the, what, the 60s. Yeah. And that wouldn't have been, she probably would have been fine today. Yeah, especially lymphomas. And of course, there are so many different types and not all of them have great prognosis, but for the vast majority, they do really well, or at least we can keep the disease at bay for such a long time. It's just a, a very different world. Um, for example, I use, I always like to use CML or chronic myeloid leukemia. In the 80s and before, even in the 90s, if you got diagnosed with CML, you usually have about three years or so before it becomes full-on uh, con consuming. Now, we managed to change it to a chronic disease. Patients just take one pill once a day, sometimes twice a day, depending, 
what we call a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And that's it. Mm-hmm. The same way they would take a blood pressure pill. That's it. That's, that's amazing what's going on and what people are working on. It's it is a, it's an exciting field to be in. Like you said, you felt called to it because you felt like you could do the most good. And I think more than any other disease, cancer is the one that scares people the most. Even though more people die of heart disease, and I wish that scared people, we're not quite as afraid of it. And I think just deep down, we just know because it's, it's our own body betraying us. It's not... Sometimes it's nothing you did or nothing you could have prevented. It comes out of nowhere sometimes. Maybe if you feel like, oh, they were a smoker, there's a reason. But so many of us, it just happens and there's no good reason. So it just feels like our body's betraying Mm -hmm. us, that we just didn't deserve it. And then, like you said, I feel like you can do the most amount of good in that because it's the thing that really gets into us and scares us more than anything. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story about one of my favorite patients to that point. So I have a veteran who I was after hours, I was still at the hospital and he just showed up to the outpatient clinic Mm -hmm. and he wants to be seen right now because he has lung cancer. So this was a guy who was about 70 years old, but he looks like he was in his mid fifties, healthy, never a smoker, still boxing and riding his (laughs) Harley at 70 and he had lung cancer because he was exposed to Agent Orange. And oh, wow. oh, wow. It was that feeling, that that feeling that you got betrayed by your body. You got betrayed by the exposure you received as he was a Vietnam vet. And yeah. you have this tough vet guy that is yelling at all the staff and everyone is scared of him. And just talking to him to five minutes and giving him a hug and the guy just broke down then and there. So people are just scared. Yeah. And just the issue is, I think one of the biggest blessings we have in life is not knowing when this life is going to end, right? Not saying that if you have a diagnosis of cancer, one, you're definitely going to die. Two, you have an accurate timeline. But especially if it's one of the more nasty cancers or metastatic, which we can cure some metastatic cancers even nowadays. But for the most part, you know that you have an expiration date that's within the foreseeable future. And Mm. I think that's what's really hard for us to reconcile. But then again, it's amazing. The human spirit is amazing, especially when you see some people who especially when they're older, or they accept it. And I would have this whole spiel ready to give it to them. And they'll be like, I'll talk. I had a good life. It is what it is. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's one way of looking at it for sure. Yeah, it's definitely harder the younger you are to accept that. But I I have had friends that have passed away from cancer young and as sad and as horrible as it is it does give life a certain amount of clarity we all they say live every day like it's your last which we can't do we, we can't do that I have to pay bills I have to show up to work if today is my last day I'd be with my family and yet so we, we can't truly live like every day is our last like you said it's sometimes a blessing that we don't know because we have to be able to just live life and enjoy it and not know. But then when something comes up, when you do have that timeline, 
And then you really can sit down and you can find that clarity in life that you didn't have time for in some levels knowing. And if you have a week or two, it's a little different than you have if you have a month or two and it's different than if you are told a year or two, but it still gives your life some focus and a trajectory. But people get a time to say what they need to say. You have those conversations, family gets together. We all die. And as much as we all want to pretend like it doesn't happen, we were talking on our last episode about getting your affairs in order, having a will, getting letting people know how you want to pass away, what your wishes are, because we don't want to think about that. But so many family members don't know. And sometimes you lose the ability to communicate. And we all want to pretend like we're not going to die. But so far... <laughs> no one makes it out alive nobody makes it out alive everybody has died that's ever lived and we need to accept that and find clarity in that and we hope it's as far off as possible but it's going to happen i'd like to think that i would be somebody that would accept a diagnosis like that with clarity and with make meaning out of it have purpose behind it but i don't know let's say i don't know how i'll react or yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. None of us really know until we're in that seat. And especially if you're feeling robbed. So mm. you know, someone who's young, or maybe even people who are not so young, having to tell someone in their mid-40s with a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old that they have metastatic pancreatic cancer. It's so hard. So hard. But... On the flip side, one of my happiest stories was a gentleman, he was 18 when he first came in Somni, and he had Ewing sarcoma of the cervical spine. So extremely yeah. difficult location involving like the body of the cervical spine. Right, so, so right up here, just Ooh. below the base of the skull. And you can't cut it out, right? I sent him even to the top two spine neurosurgeons who specialized in, in those kinds of surgeries and both of them recommended against surgery. So ended up with multiple rounds of chemotherapy and consolidated radiation. And the poor guy, he was on steroids for so long just because it was pressing on his forehead and he got bilateral avascular necrosis of the femoral heads and was on crutches. And so that's in your this. hips right there. My, the, the, yeah, yeah where this, the hips, like, are, yeah, like right up at the top where the, like, the femur goes into the hips. And it's a complication with steroids. It's not common, but yeah, getting that in both. And then the femur dies and then walking on it's super painful. It's, yeah, that's rough. Oof. Yeah. So this guy, he went from being excited to start college to basically living at the hospital for weeks at end. But the good news is by the time I left that practice, three years after the initial diagnosis, he was completely disease-free. I still, one of my buddies who's taking care of him, whenever they see him, they text me, still doing fine. He says hi. Wow. It's, yeah, it's hard. It's definitely hard when you have a young patient, for sure, which is why I could never do pediatric oncology <laughs> kudos to those guys but i have a hard time just dealing with a sick child with sniffles right <laughs> it's, uh, some, something just someone reaches out into your chest and twists your I so always, pediatric so I, I would always tell dave or tell people that if dave was allowed to do any more peds rotations we would end up having we would 
have five more kids because I remember him rounding in the hospital on the Pete's floor and dealing with the the parents and their lack of parenting or them not coming. And if he was allowed to bring them home, we would have had like eight kids at home. <laughs> I wanted to save all the kids. All I, the kids. I wanted to save all those poor little kids. So I to bring them all home and no more pediatric rotations for yeah, I'm not built for it. I can compartmentalize. I can have some distance with adults and I just don't have that with kids. I just, I feel it. I, I, it lives with me longer than it, than I can function. So I do some pediatrics, but not very many. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard to look at a five-year-old or two-year-old or 12-year-old and not something I ever considered. And Probably never will. Someone has to do it, which I'm <laughs> grateful for the folks yeah. who do. God bless everybody that goes into pediatrics. Whatever the specialty, right. they're the best. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember actually I was a medical student. I was doing a NICU rotation and we had this newborn with multi-organ failure. So this was completely serendipitous. It's not that house, as you said, <laughs> by any means. But looking through the the history, so this that couple they had one child alive and well, twelve years old or so. But apparently they've had three or four babies before who also died within the first two three weeks of life. Wow! And no one can figure out why. And at that time they were taking their chances. I'm like, all right, we'll give it a shot if this one lives. So this was, yeah, number three or number four. And that patient ended up passing away. But completely serendipitously, I was reading about HLH, hemophagocytic histolymphocytosis, which is a mouthful and not that something that you commonly see. No. And I'm going through it. I'm like, this looks way too 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 similar to this case we ended up doing a liver biopsy as i mentioned it's there's a genetic variant of it which is what that family had and they're almost all of them die but at the very least we weren't able to save that patient but we were able to give the parents a diagnosis and why this is happening and mm-hmm. that they probably shouldn't be trying for more kids anymore yeah but knowing's powerful. We can handle bad news. We really can. Humans are pretty adaptable. We can handle bad news. Mm-hmm. I feel like the hardest things that I've had to do as a doctor is to tell people I don't know. And I don't know anybody that does know. There's somebody like, oh, go see this doctor at this university. But there are things that we just don't know yet. And to tell patients, mm-hmm. I know you're suffering or I know this is affecting your life. We just don't know why. And I'm sorry. That's hard. They, they sometimes would rather just have a, even a bad diagnosis just to know what's happening. Just the peace of mind that family had, why this is happening. Yes, it'll happen again if you keep trying. It's not just bad luck. It's a genetic thing. And now you know, and you can at least make your choices based on knowledge at that point. That was powerful. And yeah, just reading that in that moment, just finding that just... All right, maybe you are just house, maybe you are just brilliant and you just put it all together. I'd like to think I am, but no. <laughs> but I appreciate the vote of confidence. Yeah, a bunch of doctors never read the right thing. So that's the other thing is we do have to stay up to date on things. We read, we study medical school, residency, fellowship. It doesn't end there. 
we have to read we have to stay up to date on things because you were able to diagnose this because you were reading you were learning and if you stop learning you stop helping oh 100 100 percent. and the more and more specialized we become the more tunnel vision we become so we become more <laughs> laser focused which is great for the things we're dealing with but a lot of the other things which we did know at some point starts falling away. My, one of my attendings used to joke in my last couple of rotations before starting fellowship that, oh yeah, in a few years, you're not going to remember any of the anti-hypertensive. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to be like this patient's on lisinopril, better put holding parameters so their heart rate don't drop, which <laughs> lisinopril doesn't drop heart rate. So. <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely a never-ending process. And if you want to be the best at what you're doing, you can't be the best of everything, right? You end up being either a jack of all trades and see a little bit of everything or a king in your specific specialty, but everything starts falling away to the wayside. Yeah. And that's why I never give the ER doctors a hard time because they do have to be a jack of all trades. They have to know a little bit about everything. And if they don't remember just all the different nerves that go into eye musculature and if they get lost and why they're having double vision, it's just like, yeah, of course they would. Like I have, I'm not going to read that EKG. I'm not going to put in a chest tube. I don't know what antibiotics to give an eight-year-old that comes in with his third ear infection and they have all that information. So if they forgot one thing about the anatomy of an eyeball and they tell me that something's in the iris, but it's really in the cornea, that's fine. Great. You're amazing. You're yeah. doing a lot. For me, this is an easy consult, but that's okay. It goes back to our early conversation about just having a little bit more of a collegial attitude towards the people you work with. You're going to forget things you learned in medical school. You're going to focus more on what you do day in, day out. And that's the great thing about specializing and having all these different specialties, but it's also the downside. But it's it's a great thing about medicine because it's so big. It's so vast. Even some of the words you said on the podcast about the that last diagnosis. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> that... <laughs> The one that the, the genetic malformation issue that baby had, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm gonna have to go look that up. I have no idea. Is that a lysosomal storage disease? Is that I, I can't remember anything about that other than I heard the term once in medical school. Yeah. And in 10 years of practice, I saw it one other time. And that's <laughs> even for us in the specialty use. It's not something you're dealing with on a regular basis. I'm not yeah. gonna remember. Yeah. But it's it just makes me appreciate everybody. Like it's, when I when people come on the podcast, and I listen to them, and I hear their humanity and what they go through. It just makes me love everybody more. And that's the power of everybody's story. Patients, doctors. If you get to know somebody, it's hard not to love them. Even some of the most cantankerous old men that are just grumpy in your office. Once you start talking to them about their lives. You just love them anyway, even if they're grumpy, or maybe you understand why they're a little grumpy. And I think we just need to have more time for conversations with each other and with patients. We're just forced through the mill of medicine. And if we slow down, and it's hard to slow down and still make ends meet in today's market, but we, we need the time to get to know each other. 100%. When I'm spending more time behind the monitor than in the room with a the patient, there's something wrong there, right? One one of my mentors told me something one time and I really took it to heart and 
still try to practice it. Do you notice how I always ask them whether it's work or their family or self? Like, they're not cancer patients. They're people who happen to have cancer. And if you speak to them, not just zoom into the room, regurgitate their diagnosis, what's on the scans, what the treatment plan is, and just call that, and actually just chat about when's your son starting college, whatever it may be. It's simple, sometimes silly things, but does bode well with the patient in your room, right? Makes you, makes them forget for a split second that, okay, why are they here? No, we're just chit-chatting. We're catching up, whatever it may be. They'll relax more. They'll be more forthcoming with even their symptoms. And speaking of all cantankerous men, and that that is, again, having worked at the VA for three years, it's <laughs> it's a defense mechanism, right? It's that generation, the strong, silent type, and their defense mechanism is to just be angry about it. Um, uh-huh. Not all of them, of course, but like I was saying about the Agent Orange guy, like after you absorb that initial anger, everything changes. And that guy would show up for his follow-ups. And one time I remember he got me a uh, bottle of hot sauce, which was called Agent Orange. (laughs) So he got to a point where he can actually joke about it. Yeah, it goes a long way to get to know everybody as, as a person instead of a patient. But thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for all you do for your patients and for medicine in general. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me to come on and just share little bits and pieces. I think it's amazing what you're doing and to be able to, as you mentioned, to give each other some grace and have some more collegiality and just hearing each other's stories. I think it's really helpful. I agree. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so we can continue to get you more stories in the future.